0: Hi there, and welcome back to a new episode of the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That?, of the Minerva Centre for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and through my chats with young researchers, I hope to learn from their struggles and successes. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Kolib, who is currently in Australia, but is no stranger to our Minerva Centre. Before I get to know him better... I'd like to invite you to take a look at our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find more information about our guests and get to see what they actually look like. And we'd like to hear what you think about us, so feel free to like, comment, and share. Now, let's get started with this episode, and let me introduce you to Jonathan Kalib. Jonathan holds an undergraduate law and politics degree from the University of Melbourne and from Monash University. He has two masters, an LLM, in International Law and an MA in International and Area Studies, both from the University of California, Berkeley. Johnson completed his PhD in Law at the University of Melbourne. His PhD dissertation was entitled Corporate Peacebuilding and the Law, Regulating the Private Sector for Conflict Transformation. In addition, he has been a visiting fellow at the George Washington University Law School and a graduate visitor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Jonathan's research interests focus on global government's issues, including current projects on international conflict resolution, business and human rights, and the accountability of transnational corporation under international law. On these topics, he has published academic articles in leading Australian and international journals, UN peacekeeping training documents, and pieces in the mainstream press, such as Newsweek, The Washington Post, and the Australian newspapers. Johnson has held positions with the government of Australia and with various think tanks and non-governmental organizations where he focused on human rights and international affairs. These roles include serving as Congressional Liaison Officer at the Embassy of Australia in Washington, D.C., and as Legal Consultant for the United Nations Secretary-General's Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict. Over the course of Johnson's academic training, He has received several awards and grants, including an RMIT College of Business Research Excellence Award, the A.O. Capel Prestigious PhD Scholarship from the University of Melbourne, a Rotary World Peace Fellowship, a Human Rights Fellowship from the University of California, and the Rufus Davis Memorial Prize for Politics from Monash University. Jonathan is currently a senior lecturer in law at the Graduate School of Business and Law at RMIT University in Melbourne where he teaches international law, international business law, and civil procedure. He is working on several ongoing research projects, and now also supervises his own PhD students. So, welcome to our podcast, Jonathan. I'm glad to finally have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that, um, that introduction. Great to be here.
0: <laughs> I'm saying finally, because we were supposed to meet and do a recording back in December in our studio in Haifa, but unfortunately, we didn't manage. So I wanted to ask you if you want to be the one to explain what you were doing in Haifa in December.
1: Um, thanks, Danny. Better late than never. I, I hope it's worth the, the, the wait. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, what I was doing in Haifa, well, uh, everything's a long story for me. I'm an academic. I was in Geneva for a few conferences and for the annual United Nations Forum on Business and Human Rights and some associated conferences. And it had been a long time since I had been back to, to Jerusalem, to Israel, and Palestine. But that's really where I cut my teeth, where I got interested in international relations and international law. And I figured I, I literally fly over the Middle East to get to Geneva. It's such a long way away. I may as well try and take the opportunity to to go to go back to Israel, Palestine. I also just felt I was at a place in my career and just personal sort of life journey that I was ready to sort of get back involved and start writing and thinking and working more actively on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which was um, is my abiding sort of uh, passion. And uh, so uh, specifically why I was at Haifa University was I was uh, giving a seminar um, for the uh, Minerva Center about uh, a current project that I am working on. In collaboration with the Australian Red Cross on what does it mean to be a responsible business actor in conflict-affected areas. Uh, Perhaps we'll get more into that in the interview, but
0: I hope we will.
1: I uh, just thought it was a fantastic opportunity to present to an audience that were living a conflict and and to get their take on. A, a, a not so um, mainstream perspective, I sh- you know, um, would like to suggest, um, perspective on international law and a, its applicability to companies rather than states or militaries. All right. And uh, really enjoyed myself.
0: That's something I can cheer to. So I'm going to pour myself my favorite drink. I brought my amaretto with me again. What are you having over there?
1: I have a gin and tonic. Which is my new favourite drink.
0: Ooh, a classic.
1: It's a classic. And everyone... So, you know, I'm embarrassed to say my first G&T was two years ago. Oh. I know. I don't know. I just never drank.
0: Cheers. Here we go. Cheers. So you like it, the new drink.
1: I do. I do. A good friend, an academic colleague, introduced me to a great gin and tonic uh, bar in Hong Kong.
0: It's a good drink to start some short questions with. (laughs) Are you ready? (laughs) I'm halfway
1: through my glass. It's a very good time for short questions.
0: (laughs) Great. What did you have for brekkie today?
1: (laughs) Um, I had uh, coffee, uh, always coffee, uh, and I had two crumpets with peanut butter and jam.
0: Oh, I miss crumpets.
1: Oh, do you know what crumpets are? Do you have crumpets in Israel? Yeah,
0: because I had them in Australia.
1: Ah, right. Okay. I think they're originally British. I, d- I don't know the the sort of the origins of it. Crumpets.
0: Might be. Very
1: British, I- I'd like to think. But yeah, crumpets.
0: I understand a lot of kids eat that. Is that what your boys eat?
1: Yeah, our lives sort of revolve around our boys. So uh, we buy things, uh, for, not for us, but what we think our boys are going to eat. Yeah. I've got two young boys. They, they had crumpets too and, and eggs. My, my, my eldest is into omelets at the moment. He wanted three this morning. I cut him off at two.
0: Okay. But he's still growing.
1: Yeah. He's still growing. <laughs> yes. Too fast. <laughs> too fast.
0: <laughs> All right. What has been your best online buy during the Corona stay at home time?
1: You know, I don't think I have bought anything online Yeah, no, I'm trying to think. Um, No, so I was one of those um, people that sort of ditched a few afternoons of work, or if I'm being honest, whole days, and and went crazy shopping. Uh, I'm not going to use the the word hoarding. I, I went crazy shopping before the lockdown.
0: So you had everything you needed.
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, my wife is um, buys odds and ends on online, and every now and then we do get a delivery person uh, coming to our door with odd-shaped packages. Um, but we had everything, and I have to say, yeah, it was actually really pleasant. In, in Australia's lockdown, we were still allowed to go out for shopping for food and veg, and that was a, a wonderful sort of... Um, a way to sort of uh, let off steam and get out of our our home. So I I, I, I tried to do that actually every three or four days to, not that we necessarily needed anything, but, um, yeah, just to go out. It did take me four supermarkets to find toilet paper. Oh, wow. I don't know if it happened in, in Israel, but there was a hoarding of toilet paper here in Australia. Literally no one could buy toilet paper for, like, weeks. And people had whole...
0: Here in Israel, we've been joking about the Australians that way, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, well, please. We're pretty embarrassed about it. Um, But, uh, yes, I found some, so we're we're all safe.
0: Yes, that's the most important. That leaves us time for the next question. What musical instruments would you like to learn how to play?
1: Oh, my God. As a kid, I... so, So, the answer is guitar. But as a kid, I had piano lessons and then trumpet lessons. But I just wish I knew guitar. Such a mobile, versatile, take anywhere type of instrument. Not like a trumpet, for example. You don't take a trumpet on a camping trip with your boys. Um, So yeah, I wish I, I wish I knew guitar. My son is learning guitar actually, so maybe we'll pick up a few things from him.
0: Was that his choice or yours?
1: Yes, yes, we're not forcing anything. No, no, that was his choice. He, um, he actually just came home yesterday and told us he's in a band Oh, at seven years old. So, yeah. He's a cool kid. <laughs> well, yeah, of, of course. Um, yeah, no, guitar. What instrument would you like to know how to play? Dan? Well,
0: actually, uh, my Dutch family owns a music store. So everyone in our family had to learn something. The only choice we had was which instrument it was going to be. So when I started, I think at the age of maybe 9, 10, I chose to play the saxophone, which was about the same size as me at the time. (laughs) (laughs) But I just loved the sound and the way it looked. Um, And I've played it for quite a few years. Uh, I have it here somewhere stored, but I haven't played it in a while.
1: Oh, you should break it out for the finale of, of this episode.
0: Well <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe for another balcony scene if there's gonna be a second lockdown, who knows?
1: I did appreciate that in Israel you did a few apartment balcony sing-alongs, didn't you?
0: They've ha they've happened, yeah. Not necessarily in my neighborhood, but
1: We did not have that. We had uh simply go outside and, and uh and clap for first responders. Which was very pleasant, but um, at least in our neighbourhood we didn't have any sing alongs. We have had a few drink alongs, in- importantly.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, that's what a are heard of that. Well you drink. <laughs> yeah you you're the one that poured an amaretto, isn't <laughs> yeah. it, at the start. You you understand what a drink along is.
0: Okay. Um, I didn't f- focus too much on your boys, but the next question I wrote was about them. Oh. I was going to ask, what are their favorite movies?
1: <laughs> well, you know, their favorite movie is the, the last one we watched, Last Saturday Night type of thing. Um, the one we lo- watched Last Saturday Night was Coco, which I thoroughly recommend. Um, my, my sons are seven and four, uh, and we're trying to, yeah, um, filter their movie watching choices um but i think their favorite favorite movie is probably planes i don't know if you've seen that the disney pixar planes is that like but the cars
0: s- but with planes
1: planes but the second one planes fire and rescue okay <laughs> um I, I i even have the soundtrack on my iphone like that's what i listen to it's a beautiful beautiful story and you you will cry at the end
0: Oh, okay, so maybe I do have to watch it.
1: It's beautiful. Planes, Fire and Rescue.
0: Thanks for the tip. Last short question then. What has been your craziest plan B in case you wouldn't have landed a job in academia?
1: Oh, geez. Uh, the craziest thing would be to put on a suit and um and join a corporate law firm.
0: <laughs>
1: no, I mean, I didn't really have too much of a plan B. I don't really have a plan A, to be honest. Um, That's all right. right. Two, two answers for you. Um, Secondary school teacher. Um, I always think uh, even now when I retire from academia, I might just be able to go back and teach young kids. I think there's something very pure and very fulfilling about that. And then always think there's a bit of an entrepreneur in me as well so something you didn't read out i tried to start a little social enterprise back in berkeley Or i did start a social enterprise back in berkeley and uh 15 years ago now and would like to try and one day go back to that too so i'd like yeah so i guess i do have a few plan b's they're not very fleshed out i'm gonna bomb out on them too but you know
0: (laughs) they're in the back of your mind yeah great I'm going to dig in straight away now because I have this burning question. I've noticed that you have two BAs and also two MAs, a postgraduate diploma in legal practice, skills and ethics, and on top of that, a PhD, which is quite impressive. And I was wondering why you chose to pursue all of these degrees and if you would recommend others to do the same.
1: Yeah. Why did I go through... So, I mean, again, there's stories about each, each and every one, I I do like studying. I love teaching too. And I like study and I like the pursuit of studying. I think there's always more to learn. Yeah. And so that was just my life journey. And then there were some opportunities that were attached to some of those. So I, I used my honours year, for example. So you mentioned I have two bachelor's, bachelor of arts degrees. I don't, I've only got one bachelor of arts degree from Melbourne Uni. And one Bachelor of Arts honours degree. So, just the the, that extra year from Monash. But Melbourne Uni, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into here, refused to allow me to do my project for my honours year and refused to allow me to do it in Jerusalem where I wanted to do it. And so I went to Monash, um, who um, were very generous in allowing me to do that for my honours year. So that was an, also an opportunity to travel, see a little bit of the world and sit in in the location which I'm writing about. Um, I write about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then the two master's degrees from Berkeley was also just I just fell into it. I was actually, I had just finished my LLB and my BA. It was 2003. I was doing some research assisting work. I was working for a, a negotiation consultancy firm um, in the city here. And, but I was really trying to work out what to do with my life now that I have a law degree and an arts degree and an honors degree. And, and, and I saw a, an ad for a scholarship, the Rotary World Peace uh, Fellowship. And, uh, and that was two years in Berkeley. And what I wanted to do was an LLM. And they said I could do that in a year and I could tack on another master's degree. And so silly me said, OK, let's try and do two master's degrees in two years, two theses and, uh, and a whole bunch of coursework. Wow. Yeah. And so that's why I have the two master's degrees. And then the PhD was my ticket home. Uh, again, there was a bit of work in between in my academia, um, between Berkeley and, and the start of the PhD. There was about six years, um, seven years even. And um, when I worked in the States and we had, we, my wife and I had just decided to, it was time to return home, start a family. And I didn't quite know what type of career international law international affairs career i could have in melbourne australia so a phd was quite honestly sort of a soft landing it appealed to me again because i i like to study i like to write i like to share my my ideas and, and learn about others yeah that's why the phd happened so there were reasons why for each of these degrees It wasn't that I set out to sort of accumulate as many initials after my name as possible.
0: Right. It must be very long. (laughs) But then the MAs were actually done quite fast because you did two in two years. But for how long have you been a student?
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, geez. Uh, I'm not good at maths. I'll tell you that. Um, So I started, I mean, apart from high school. So I did in 96, no, 97, I started my, 95, I graduated from high school. I did a gap year in Israel-Palestine in 96. Uh, and in 97, I started a, a medicine degree, actually, believe it or not. I did one year of medicine at oh. university. Yeah, I don't put that on the CV. <laughs> and then, um, so what, so 97 to, when did I finish my PhD officially? 2017, I think.
0: Right, I think I saw that.
1: 20 years minus, let's say, six or seven years of actual work in there. <laughs> So, um, yeah, probably a good 15, 12 to 15 years of being a student in various guises.
0: But it got you a lot of titles.
1: I'm not really into it for the titles. Uh, It allowed me to do really interesting things, study interesting topics, meet amazing people and have those life experiences. So that's what I'm thankful for, yeah.
0: All right. you already just explained to me why it is you went back to Australia for your PhD. Yeah. But let's take a step back. You've done both your MAs at Berkeley in the US. But why did you choose to continue your studies there at the time? And how did you finance all of those studies abroad?
1: Find a good scholarship. Find a good scholarship. Um, again, you know, it's like, uh, there's no secret code, I don't think. I mean... I, I was muddling around here in 2003, trying to work out what to do with my life. I literally saw a poster. I was volunteering with a an amazing professor, um, Di Bretherton, and I saw a poster for this thing called a Rotary World Peace Scholarship, and I applied.
0: And you saw this when you were still in Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah. In 2003, I was still in Australia, um, working in Melbourne, doing some odd jobs and RA work and volunteering at a the, in the Conflict Resolution Centre at, at Melbourne Uni, trying to work out, again, how to have a career. And this was a, a great way to sort of procrastinate, if you will. Um, I applied and I'm, yeah, they saw fit to um, give me two years, all expenses paid, to Berkeley, it was an amazing scholarship. It still exists. It's changed the cha- the the, um, the name has changed to Rotary World Peace Fellowship. Uh, a rotary being, you know, the the image of you know those old men getting together for lunch in a you know in a hotel once a week. Well, they happen to be one of the world's largest humanitarian organisations that um, does amazing work all around the world in. Literally dozens of countries. They're helping eradicate polio. They, they do all sorts of amazing projects. They're drilling wells and providing hospital equipment, MRI machines into Myanmar. Um, they do amazing stuff. But what they also do is have an amazing educational scholarship program. And, and this still exists. And if anyone's listening and is interested, please feel free to drop me a line. More than happy to have a chit-chat about it. And and recommend you.
0: Sounds great. Thanks for the tip. Okay, and I've also mentioned earlier that you've worked at the Embassy of Australia in Washington DC and for the UN Secretary General. Um, and you just said that then there was this time in your life where you wanted to come back to Australia and you were figuring out what the best step for you would be. But again, like if you want to start a family. Would you recommend others to start doing a PhD instead of developing a career in the field? Uh,
1: well, um, it's a rather sensitive issue at the moment because believe it or not in uh, 20 when was it 2011 or 2012 both my wife and I started PhDs we both came home and started yes double PhDs and now in 2020, um, we just, uh, my wife just graduated with her PhD, finished this year. Congratulations. In January, thank you. Uh, and we've had two kids. She took several years off to raise our kids, uh, which I am forever thankful. And I'm not going to lie, there were some really stressful moments during that. So I definitely don't recommend two PhDs under the one roof. But I do recommend pursuing your passion. You know, like life's too short. So, we both sort of settled on p h d. s as our next steps um for different reasons, and so we both supported one another in in doing that
0: that sounds wonderful
1: well yeah, but ne- well yeah but but neither of us have a career mapped out right like and I don't know too many people, especially in international law, that have careers mapped out um at any stage really
0: It's more something that just happens oh yeah, you
1: know. I don't want to throw out any truisms, you know, luck and all the rest. You've got to be in the right pl- time and the right place and blah, blah, blah. But there's a bit of that. And there's also a bit about the other truism is you make your own luck.
0: You have to invest in it quite a bit. And that was something that was on my list too. I wanted to ask you, when did you start publishing articles? Was that during your MA or your PhD? And because you've been educated in both fields of political science and law, what are the differences in... Uh, sending in articles to those journals?
1: I think I only started publishing when I started my PhD, when I realised, unfortunately, in this cutthroat world, that a PhD is no longer enough for an academic gig. You need to publish whilst you're doing your PhD um, in order to be attractive to potential academic employers at the end of it. I published a few things. Also, I think I published... My first article actually came out of a little blog post I wrote for The Conversation. I don't know if you get The Conversation in, in Israel. It's sort of like a online, newsy website run by journalists, but only academics can write articles. And I wrote something about um, my PhD research, and, and then a law journal picked up the phone essentially and said, hey, can you write a longer piece for us?
0: Oh, okay, interesting.
1: Yeah. Again, like journal articles is one thing and there's certainly a whole lot of pressure uh, in academia to produce, produce, produce and there's KPIs and universities. Funding is tied to the number of journal articles that their um, academics produce. Uh, I try and balance those pressures with also doing meaningful work which may not actually end up in a the product of a journal article or a book at all. So again, I just want to balance that
0: so again did you publish a lot more in political science journals or Mm. law journals
1: there you go i told you i was going to ramble i didn't actually answer your question so at a certain point i realized that strategically it made more sense for me to be in the law camp okay and to be honest it came down to what was my point of difference in terms of you know um peace and conflict or international conflict resolution which I'd like to think of as as my area, what can I add to that conversation? And I could add a law component to that. So, I thought that that was really important in terms of my personal sort of narrative or, you know, selling point. But also, just bluntly, law schools have money. Uh, Law schools hire. Law schools have money for projects. And so, actually, when I was Trying to work out where to do my PhD, a big question at that point back in 2010, 2011 was where do I apply, law schools or political science schools? And it was at that point that I sort of threw in my lot with the law community.
0: So definitely leaning more towards the law faculties.
1: But for strategic reasons, uh, and now I find myself reaching out to my international relations and political science colleagues and keen to do collaborations um, with them, where we can marry up the two disciplines as well. So, um, you're not wedded once, once again, you're established in academia or, you know, have a foothold. I think you're not necessarily wedded to a particular discipline, or at least I find myself not wedded to a particular discipline.
0: Right. Because you're now footed. So you have maybe that luxury. Uh, you're now a senior lecturer at the graduate school of business and law at RMIT university. And you supervise PhD candidates yourself now. Can you tell us what better and worse practices you have experienced with your own supervisor or supervisors and what you try to do now yourself?
1: My PhD experience was not smooth. Yeah.
0: I haven't heard a story yet that is completely smooth. So I think that's quite all right.
1: (laughs) You know, and I think it's so important for Current and future PhD students to hear that it's not like you enrol in a PhD program and then in three to five years you get a PhD and you just sit and you write or you do your research and it's there's a huge part of uh, relationships and people management, um, not in you know a cynical way, but you got to manage relationships um, um, potentially with your topic, but also specifically with your in, with your supervisors. I changed supervisors. You know, I ran about the first year. I, um, let's just say it was uh, a mutually agreed upon uh, arrangement that um, we sever sever ways. And then uh, in my final year, rather inconveniently, my uh, primary supervisor decided uh, to up and leave and move countries. And I felt um, out yeah yeah I, I didn't take it personally. Um, and he's a great guy and I still I still keep in touch. but I think especially in that final year, it's really important to have someone hands on to be able to be able to knock on a door and and, and, and get um, you know a two cents uh, opinion about an issue or, or whatever. And so I, I did also bring on um, another supervisor for that final year even. In terms of advice, I think some students think that it's the supervisor's project and that you're going to be guided and, you know, handheld. It's not. It's your project. Um, and so to be proactive and um, and manage up, you know, um, manage your supervisors, I think, is, is a skill set that um, PhD students should sort of take on board. And then even... You know, and it's not just the negative stuff too, but but supervisors obviously have their own interests and they might want to push you in a direction that you don't want to go. And and that's part of the the, the back and forth. But I think also PhD students should, you know, develop that confidence in their project that they can stand their ground at a certain point. Definitely take on board criticism and feedback and, and, you know, really imbibe and digest that. That's what we've got to do. We've got to learn. But at a certain point, It's okay to say, no, I'm not doing your project. I'm doing mine.
0: All right. Have you had a student tell you that yet?
1: (laughs) Um, So, um, no. Uh, You know, as a supervisor now, it's actually fascinating. Um, and, And what I'm finding is even managing the different opinions between the supervisors about what the project is can be also difficult to navigate and I can certainly appreciate from a student if you're getting you know one piece of advice or one set of advice uh, from one supervisor and something else um, from another it can be very hard to sort of um, work out what to do. I haven't had any students tell me that's rubbish Jonathan I don't want to do that yeah not yet I'm sure that's in my future.
0: Let's see and let us know when you do. <laughs> I have another question about this um, supervisor stuff, especially being the supervisor now, because it's sometimes not only the supervisor who doesn't have time for the PhD student. That The reason that he does or she doesn't have time is also because of the way the whole institution and the universities mm. work, right? So what do you think the university could do to help oh. you prepare PhD students in the best way possible.
1: Totally, I was going to actually interrupt you, Danny, and say, to be honest, I'm really—I mean, I understand that there's an audience of PhD students out there, but the PhD supervision takes up so little of my time uh, relative to other academic commitments uh, that I just have. Uh, I've got a few academic, uh, a few PhD supervisions, and they total officially, in terms of you know my allocated hours over the year, less than ten percent. Um, probably actually more like 5% of my time. So I think also knowing that as a PhD student is really valuable. Like you walk in there for a supervision meeting. I remember me, you know, you walk in there, you sit on the couch and, and you think your PhD supervisor has read your draft chapter, has even, you know, is well versed in, in all the literature that you're quoting from and referencing and has, has nothing else on their plate. Um, that day or ever, um, other than your your um, project. It's just not the case. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, universities could do a better job of managing expectations, making things clear and transparent about what the supervisory role is all about, what the PhD project is all about. One thing that um, we're doing now as a university is thinking through actually exactly this how can we better support our PhD students and we're throwing around ideas like actually injecting coursework into our PhD programs so traditionally we've had sort of the British system where it's essentially there might be some methodology courses and stuff uh, or some you know informal seminars but essentially it's it's dissertation writing and now we sort of want to adopt perhaps some aspects of the um, the American sort of PhD model and actually yeah, make compulsory, uh, some, some courses and establish, therefore, not just give them knowledge, uh, but also establish a cohort. And I think that to me is, is something that I regret in my PhD experience that I didn't make the most of, that there were opportunities to actually not be so isolated, um, not in, you know, and blink it in your own project, but actually treat it as almost another course, right? That you're in it together with other PhDers. So I think if we can cultivate that collegiality, that notion that you're part of a cohort, uh, I think that would be really valuable for for outcomes, for students and for, yeah, for, for supervisors.
0: Sounds like a good idea. I haven't thought about it that way. Like when I think of courses, it's only about the knowledge or maybe some useful skills, but I haven't no. thought about how it actually gets you out there and meet other people. Right. Which is very important.
1: Yeah, I mean... I, I had, I had, I had a partner, and at a certain point in my PhD, I had kids, and so I, I, I was had very limited time. Um, but the, the the opportunities to meet other people um, that were going through similar experiences, I remember as being very valuable, and I wished actually there was more structure that almost compelled me um, to be involved and to have those types of interactions.
0: Okay, so that's what the universities can do. Yeah. And now we know that um, most of your time you're actually not working on PhD students, but on lots of other projects and on teaching, of course. My last question of the day is, what is your next project and what are you going to do with that?
1: Well, let me let me, let me pivot and tell you uh, of a project that I am currently in, uh, Knee Deep in. We actually just released last Thursday uh, a piece of... Um, a publication. I'm working with the Australian Red Cross on this uh, large project about uh, what, what is responsible business conduct in conflict-affected areas, and in particular with the Red Cross, the custodians of, of the Geneva Conventions, um, the custodians of international humanitarian law. We're trying to work on embedding and strengthening corporate respect for international humanitarian law, Um, We find in our research uh, and our consultations with the corporate community that whilst many leading companies understand the language of human rights and even have embedded human rights into their uh, internal policies and practices, very, very few – and I want to sort of be um, uh, black and white about it, so I'll say very, very few – have actually embedded the laws of war, the international humanitarian law – into even their security forces uh, training, Uh, even though, again, some of the largest Australian companies actually have themselves operations in conflict zones. Many others have supply chains that go through uh, conflict zones. So that's a a big project. We just released a huge guidance document uh, on that, uh, which relates also back to an earlier comment, which I said that journal articles are not everything. The most fulfilling Truly, the most fulfilling piece of of writing, the the most fulfilling publication I have done in the past six months is that, which I'd like to think is impactful in the real world uh, and not just in academia. And my university is supportive of that. And I think the, the roles of academic are changing. So we're going to continue. We're going to continue that project. I also have on my desk a whole bunch of behavioral economics textbooks. Because for a long time now, I have wanted to get back into behavioural thinking about behavioral economics and international law.
0: And that's something completely new for you.
1: Yeah, completely new. I dabbled in it a little bit in my PhD dissertation and yeah, had, had some presentations actually uh, about it in Tel Aviv. And um, Israel is a huge hub for behavioral economics um, academics. Um, and there's very little written about international law and behavioral economics. So I'd like to get involved uh, a little bit in that space. And then, as again, as I started, there's obviously no shortage of projects. But um, another aspect that we're working on, I work on, is uh, the protection of children in armed conflict. And I'm currently drafting up a piece about how we can better protect schools in conflict zones Schools don't have the same protection as hospitals and medical facilities do under international humanitarian law, which, yeah, plainly speaking, is, is wrong. And in uh, and, and investigating, again, the, the different lacunae in the legal protections for children during armed conflict, there's a whole lot of work that could and still should be done on protection of children who don't normally have a voice in policymaking or lawmaking. So I find, especially with two young boys, I find that work very meaningful as well.
0: All right. Um, I wish you the best of luck with getting funding for all of those projects that you've mentioned. (laughs) I'll cheer to that. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Hopefully one of them will also have you visit us again at the Minerva Center once the travel restrictions are lifted.
1: I look forward to that.
0: And I'd like to wrap up with some other short questions.
1: Oh, you said the, the first... final question before. Okay.
0: That final? was the final big question, oh, the but final I also had quest... short questions. Okay. It's different. <laughs> okay. Well
1: <laughs> I'm not we sure go. which one's more nerve wracking. Anyway. Crumpets or, or Oh, don't worry about children. it. We'll
0: keep it short also okay. in answers and then All we'll good. have it over with. <laughs> what was the most significant conference that you've been to? <laughs> that is for yeah. you. Yeah.
1: Uh, So it's not an academic conference, but Geneva um, has... There's a United Nations annual forum on business and human rights. Three, two, three, three thousand people, corporates, academics, civil society all come together to talk about business and human rights. I find that very validating and invigorating. Um, Not necessarily... I mean, I, I got great lots of great ideas and connections, but it's just... Also, one of those conferences where you can sort of be anonymous when you want to be and sit in the back of a conference hall and just listen to brilliance, which is sometimes what you need as, as an academic, you know. And then the other one that springs to mind is the Australian New Zealand Society for International Law, which was held in Wellington a few years back. I was able to take my, my family and my wife actually presented at that conference too, and we, we took our boys um, always nice to be able to marry up family with um, with work. I was part of a really beautiful panel. It was about kids and, and IHL, kids in conflict, and um, and made some really nice connections with some really great people.
0: All right, it's all about the networking.
1: It's it, it's it is, but it's not in the cynical way of you know like accumulating cards uh, or LinkedIn followers. Um, I genuinely love meeting new people and talking and swapping ideas and seeing where those connections might take us.
0: Right. Who knows what will come out of it next? Yeah. Then which scholarship took you most effort to apply for?
1: You know, probably the Rotary World Peace Fellowship. I had to fill in, which was back in 2003 I applied for. I had to go through a few interviews, had to justify sort of, yeah, my writing. And I also remember I had to sit... At the very last minute, one of those standardized tests, like it was like an SAT. It was called a GRE, a graduate something, something exam. Right. And they told me, uh, all your paperwork is great. Where's your GRE scores? And I said, what? And they said, (laughs) yeah, you need that. Otherwise, we're not going to process your application. And so I literally had a week to find where to sit that. And I sat it. And it turns out that that was like the most pivotal thing and I didn't even realize uh, apparently people study for months and months and months. And um, I'm glad I didn't have the stress of knowing all of that.
0: But it was very worth applying for.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was at a crossroads when I, when I you know, upon reflection. And um, again, that allowed me to procrastinate, gave me two years, uh, special years in Berkeley. Yeah, like, again, meeting amazing people and so many opportunities stemmed from that. My work at the United Nations stems from the connections I made at Berkeley. And yeah, so Beautiful. absolutely. Yeah, no regrets on that, that front.
0: Okay. And what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field?
1: Oh, geez. I'm not sure what my field is, Danny.
0: <laughs> or your fields.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, to be honest. So again, I might not be giving you the, the answer that you, you want, but I find the most uh, fulfilling is the teaching. You get the instant feedback. You actually see that you've left a mark on the students and, you know, the responsibility of teaching the next generation of international lawyers um, is kind of cool. Fair enough. I like to think that that's my mark that I leave on the field. I mean, I'm proud of a few journal articles and stuff, but, you know, it's the the publication I did for the UN um, Office uh, for the Protection of Children in Armed Conflict, the, on the six six grave violations way back when, and you know this Red Cross work, um, much of which, by the way, will never see the light of day, is, is done confidentially, is the most fulfilling stuff I do.
0: All right, thanks for sharing. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished?
1: As in, right in academia?
0: Could be academia, but for some people, it's their mom.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Now, now I have to say, my mummy. Um,
0: <laughs> you don't have to, I
1: think. No, so. she's going to listen to this. Um, so, definitely, mummy and daddy. Um, they got through raising four Four wild animals. No, uh, So, in academia, two people I, 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 I admire that I've had the amazing fortune of crossing paths with in my life uh, and in my academic, quote unquote, life uh, Edwin Epstein, Ed Epstein, who was a professor at Berkeley who ran essentially the Peace and Conflict Studies program, uh, whilst I was there. An amazing person. Yeah, so full full of compassion and empathy and giving, 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 giving. Yeah, just a good heart. Like a you know, there's a Yiddish word mensch. Um, uh-huh. he was a mensch. He was a great role model for for me and and a, a and a friend and a Uh, and, and a great academic he was writing stuff in the 1970s that um was really cutting edge too um and then you know someone else i've had the amazing fortune of working for um is ambassador mort Abramowitz, um who really embodies what i love about marrying up the academic and the thinking side of things with the doing thinking and doing he's um I was his special assistant at the Century Foundation in Washington, D.C. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey and to Thailand. He happened to be the ambassador to both of those places, first during the first Gulf War, uh, when there was a whole Kurdish refugee issue uh, immediately after the Gulf War, uh, and then also in uh, Thailand. He was there during the refugee crisis, and he sacrificed his career to look after though the people that had no one else to look after them. The Kurds um, and uh, a lot of Southeast Asians, Thais, Vietnamese that needed, that were refugees and needed needed safety, needed shelter. And, you know, he did amazing things. Um, he was a US diplomat for about 30, 40 years. And then in his retirement, he was the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he founded the International Crisis Group, which is not bad in retirement. Um, So if only I can emulate some uh, of those two gentlemen's feats, I'll be very happy.
0: Looking forward. (laughs) Okay, now I really, really have my last question ready for you. Oh, yeah,
1: sure, sure. I'll finish off my gin and tonic.
0: Great. How do you relax after a hard day of work?
1: I watch mindless uh, TV if I get the chance. Um, Netflix is amazing for academics. We get to binge watch. So I have, I I sometimes work late at night, but then there are other days where I don't do any work at all and just binge watch whole series. Uh, Space Force, I recommend. Steve Carell.
0: Space Force, yes, I love that show It's
1: great I, right. I, I think I watched the entire season in like three days And um, I just discovered um, Ricky Gervais' Afterlife on Netflix
0: Oh, also a really good one, British show
1: Yeah, yeah, I love the British humour I love the British humour um, Yeah, and then otherwise I keep tabs on American politics Which, I don't know why, it just depresses me but I do do that. I have great affection for uh, the country, the people of America, I guess, and um, we spent so long there and have good friends there. And um, so I do find myself, unfortunately, watching a bit too much CNN or MSNBC or even Fox News sometimes late at night.
0: Well, these are exciting days. It's good to keep track of it.
1: Exciting is one word. (laughs)
0: Alright, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan, and for sharing your journey. And I'd also like to thank our listeners and our followers. Listen to a new episode every Thursday, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn about our previous and next guests. Alright, thanks for coming over. I had a good time talking with you about all the things that you do, including peace and conflict. You mentioned that this is sort of your area.